Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're going to be talking about the upcoming impeachment trial and many of the legal issues and questions surrounding that. And so to talk about that, we have my colleague at the R Street Institute, James Walner, who works in our governance program. So James, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So what what is R Street? Well, it's there's a street <laughs> in DC. Yes. No, R Street, I mean, you tell me. It's a uh, it's a it's a it's a, I used to say it was a small boutique think tank. It sounded pretty good to me, but I'm not sure it's necessarily so small or boutique anymore. But what I how I think about R Street in my head is that it's a bunch of people who aren't doctrinaire, who aren't ideological, who take the world as it comes at them and then try their best to understand it and make sense of it. I don't know. How does that sound to you? Uh, it, it sounds okay. Yeah, I used to. People used to ask me all the time. Oh, you know, when I introduced myself as being from R Street or the R Street Institute, uh, they would, you know, ask, "Well, what what is the R what is R Street, and then why is it why is it named R Street?" And uh, the the name is not very interesting. It's is perhaps not. I I don't get that question very much anymore. I think, be, which is a good sign that people know about us. Um, it used, I, I did occasionally, people would think that it was our street, O-U-R street, as opposed to the letter R. And there was one time when I testified, uh, and this was, I think, on like electric transmission or something like that. And in the minutes, they wrote it up and said that I was representing the the Artistry Institute. So, you know, I was very, very concerned about that uh, our transmission lines be aesthetically pleasing, perhaps. I, I'm all about, I think we need more aesthetic discussion in our politics. For instance, I'm not a big fan of billboards, but it's a state level issue. But I do think that's important. So I welcome the Artistry Institute. If it's not out there, then somebody needs to start it. But, you know, w- real quick, what I'll say about R Street for your listeners, is what I love about it. I worked in DC, have worked in DC for a very long time now. And it's not until I got to R Street where all of a sudden I can talk to everybody. And when I worked at the Heritage Foundation, I'm not going to be getting a lot of phone calls from Bernie Sanders' people, right? But at R Street, one day you can be talking to Bernie Sanders' people. The next day you can be talking to Ted Cruz's people. And then everybody in between. And I think that's just such a fabulous thing. And we need more of it in our politics today. Let's talk about something that can bring everybody together. And that is the uh, the impeachment and trial of the president. I'd say second impeachment for President Trump and unusual in a number of ways to the extent that any presidential impeachment can be usual. The biggest thing is that President Trump is no longer the president. I think we'll get into that. But before we do, let's let's talk about the impeachment in general. Uh, you know, the articles, I, I was just reading them 
the, the articles of impeachment that were passed. So it was pretty short, five pages. And it, you know, bas- basically, if I had to boil it down, there's kind of two things that are mentioned there. One is uh, incitement, uh, Trump's comments, both at the rally on January 6th and then beforehand uh, claimed that our that, that incited uh, the storming of the Capitol or however you want to, however you want to classify that. And then there's also something in there about his phone call to the secretary of state of Georgia, where they were challenging the election results and trying to like, uh, you know, claiming that there was, there was fraud and they needed to recertify and the claims that that was untoward and, you know, trying to, trying to overturn the election results there. So, I mean, what what is your what is your assessment of that as far as like the you know it's obviously perhaps given the exigent exigencies of the circumstance the whole thing moved pretty rapidly compared to other impeachments and you know there were there weren't any hearings there weren't any witnesses uh, it was a little thin uh, in terms in that regard. Uh, so, I mean, what is your, what is your assessment of all that? 2021 looks like it's up out to a good start already. And <laughs> rivaling 2020, I think, is the first thing. Look, and impeachments are never ordinary. That's, I think, something to keep in mind. They're also not, you know, and we'll get into this, but you know, they're not criminal proceedings. And they're not strictly legal proceedings. They're political proceedings. And so if you want to make sense of a particular impeachment, it's important to look to the law. It's important to look to the behavior and try to put on your, you know, your blindfold and the scales in your hand and try to understand what's going on here. It's also important to look at the motivations. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It's just an observation. House Democrats impeached Donald Trump at the tail end of his presidency, knowing he wouldn't be president for much longer. And I believe they did so, one, because people were, I think, justifiably upset and and were horrified by what they saw at the Capitol. I worked there. I met my wife there. I raised my family there. I thought I was going to die there some days sooner than others. And it was very violating to me. It was not a good thing. And so I think that kind of constituent outcry, coupled with the moment, pushed Democrats into this position where it's only a good thing for them and it's a bad thing for Republicans because it forces Republicans to take a vote on something that they necessarily don't want to take a vote on. And so you see the House do this very quickly. And then all of a sudden, because they have to impeach him before he leaves office. And we'll get well, into this. Yeah, that, but, I mean, that's a question out there, whether they right. have to do that. But they did. They but did. they did. I mean, and I think one of the reasons why they moved so quickly was precisely so they could impeach him before they left office. Otherwise, they could have waited till April and they could have done their due diligence. But instead, you know, it's impeach him. And then they send it to the Senate. But what's remarkable to me and what tells me we need to take into account political calculations too, and I don't use that word negatively, is that this is so important. This is such a pressing matter. This is so absolutely vital that we are going to wait for 12 days to send this article of impeachment to the Senate, number one. And then number two, when it finally gets to the Senate, the Senate's going to delay it even further. And so that tells me that there's a lot of different things at play here other than strictly what happened on this day at this time with this person. Yeah. So they're, I mean, they're absolutely, I think that's absolutely uh, right. One thing that 
you know, I, I, I have heard uh, just by way of explanation of, you know, why did the House wait to send the articles over to the Senate? Uh, and I think part of it was that the nature of the Senate rule, correct me if uh, if you think I have this wrong, but this is what McConnell said was that, you know, under the Senate rules, the Senate couldn't actually conduct any business uh, before the 19th of January, unless there was uh, unanimous consent. So, you know, a single senator, uh, Ted Cruz or Rand Paul or whoever, could have objected and prevented any consideration of it. You know, so so it wasn't it wasn't like they were. You know, so so the, I guess the the perspective would be for, from the House is well, we did, wouldn't actually advance things any by sending it over any earlier because nothing could be done about it for them anywhere. Well. Two things to that. One, let Ted Cruz object. Two, the Senate had an agreement that the House could send over messages, which is what an article of impeachment is. It's a message. You send it over. They had an agreement that the Senate could receive those. Normally, you can't under the rules. They did. But there was a different provision of the unanimous consent request that uh, or agreement that precluded the Senate from conducting business during these pro forma sessions. And so the House could have sent over the articles and they could have been there ready to go for the first day that the Senate could conduct business, which was the 19th. Instead, what happened? When did they send them over? Was it the 25th? Something like that, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it was like a week later. It was even a week beyond the day that the Senate could finally get acting on these things, which tells me that there's and we've seen articles about well Biden's legislative agenda could be imperiled and there's all these other different things at play here and again that tells me that is it really and it, these are just questions I'm raising I think we should all be asking ourselves not to defend Trump or what happened at the Capitol but is this really so pressing that we should hit the gas and ignore any kind of substantial questions about the constitutionality of the process and just go full steam ahead because something must happen. Somebody must pay. Somebody must be punished. Yeah. So let's let, let's talk about let's kind of drill into the 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 process questions uh, because you know the, I think the big one has to do with the fact that uh, you know ordinarily impeachment you you have there's an impeachment there's a trial and then the vote is, you know it's about whether to remove the person or not in this case. You have uh, a former president, an ex-official, and there's been a lot of there's been a lot of controversy about well, is it actually even legal or constitutional to have an impeachment for someone who is no longer a federal officer or federal official? And that that's actually been something that there's been debates about that going back hundreds of years. And you wrote something on this, looking at kind of the history and whatnot. So what? Maybe you could just lay out uh, your basic take on that question. Yeah, it, it seems to me that I know we keep saying there's a controversy over this issue, but it seems to me from where I sit, I'm one of the very few people who believe that it's unconstitutional to convict a private citizen after they left office. So maybe, maybe there isn't well, a controversy. I mean, maybe I'm on the other side of a of the totality of opinion here. But well, if, I mean, so just as we're recording this, I think just yesterday they had a vote. In the Senate on this question, and it was fifty-five to forty-five. So you know, it's largely largely partisan lines. But you know, there's forty-five senators saying no. We don't think that you can you can uh, have a trial and 
uh, vote to remove an official or have the impeachment process for someone who is uh, not an official anymore. So, so you, you at least have that, right? <laughs> yeah. Woo-hoo. This is great. Um, and I'm sure that in the future, people will point to that vote and say a simple majority has agreed that the Senate can do this. And look, I don't disagree. The Senate can have a trial. Let's just talk about impeachment for a second. The Constitution gives the sole power of impeachment to the House. They get to vote and say, hey, we want to impeach you, buddy. And if they impeach you, the try it goes to the Senate, who has the sole power of trying that impeachment. Sole power is sole power. It is not qualified. Now, the Senate rules require the Senate to have a trial, in my opinion. But setting that aside, the very next clause of the Constitution after the sole power to try impeachment clause, Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6, is Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7. I paid attention in math class growing up. (laughs) And Clause 7 tells us that in those trials, the Senate can only decide two things, removal from office and disqualifying from future office. Now, then go on to the next piece of impeachment evidence or uh, stuff in the Constitution is Article 2, Section 4, which tells us who's subject to impeachment, the president, the vice president, and all civil officers. And then if we go even further, we can look at, well, Article 3, Section 2, Clause 3 guarantees the trial of all crimes except in cases of impeachment that shall be by jury. And then the Sixth Amendment says that you have like due process rights and a whole host of other things as a private citizen. And then the president, the pardon power, he's not able to pardon uh, impeachment, uh, someone who's been impeached and removed from office um, either. But I don't think that has as much bearing on this particular debate. So I think the totality of all of those clauses together, coupled with the debates of the federal convention, coupled with the debates of the ratifying conventions, coupled with the historical practice, suggest very clearly in my mind that one, the Senate can 100% have a trial. It is constitutional to try Donald Trump. The Senate can do that. If the House sends them an article of impeachment, they can have a trial. But it also tells me that the Senate can't convict a private citizen who is no longer in office. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you could, I mean, it's kind of weird to say you could have a trial, but the trial can't result in conviction. Uh, uh, I mean, the Senate can debate all sorts of things, but that doesn't mean it can necessarily do those things. But, you know, and I, I raised this issue on Twitter and a, and a lot of attorneys were got upset with me, but like the Constitution explicitly forbids bills of attainder. But like no one would suggest the Senate can't bring one up and debate it, right? I mean, I think, or there's lots of things the Senate does on it. Even yesterday, there was a constitutional point of order. If whatever the Senate does on its floor is by definition leading to a constitutional outcome, why on the earth does the Senate have constitutional points of order to challenge the constitutionality of different proceedings? It seemed to me that like, you know, it's an interesting, interesting question I'd like to talk about some of the historical examples in a bit, but I think, you know, it kind of kind of breaks down in one respect the case seems very simple and both both sides of the case seem, you know, very simple. So, you can't do it side the some, you know, the the simple straightforward case is, well, I mean impeachment is about trying to remove the officer and so if the person is not the officer anymore, it, you know, like that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and then the flip side, and I think the, you know, kind of the, the linchpin of all the arguments 
that, yes, you can do this, is that it does say in the Constitution that there are two potential consequences that can come from impeachment and conviction. The first is removal from office. And then the second is disqualification from holding office in in the future, right? Uh, So even though removal is not, you know, that's kind of moot now uh, because Trump is uh, no longer a federal officer or a federal elected official, he might want to run again in the future. And, you know, so that, I mean, this is like the point is we, you know, you convict him so you could disqualify him from running again. And that's something separate. So it would be kind of weird. If it, so I guess the argument is it would be weird to say, well, you can't do former official because then uh, someone could always evade the prospect of being disqualified from future office by just resigning before they get convicted or, or whatever. Certainly. There's a textual answer to your question, I believe, although I'm not an English professor, but I believe it. And so we're going to run with it until I'm told that it's not true. And then I think there's also a kind of uh, common sense and just logical question. And then also, I think we can look to the debates themselves. And I think they're very, to me, they're very clear. And so if we look at the text of the Constitution in this particular area, it says that you can remove somebody, right? Judgment can't, can it limits the Senate's judgment to removal from office, comma, and disqualification to hold any, to enjoy any office of honor, trust, profit, et cetera. The way I read that and the way I juxtapose it to other provisions that particularly in the state constitutions prior to the federal constitution is that it's not the word or, number one. Number two, there are not two independent clauses there. So the comma doesn't separate two ideas of equal rank and significance. And then number three, I think it comes into conflict. If you if you accept that expansive reading of that clause, article of such of clause seven, it comes into conflict with Article Two, Section Four, which defines who's subject to impeachment, and it forces you to engage in all sorts of intellectual gymnastics to read the word former into that particular clause, but then turn around and say that Donald Trump can't make recess appointments and he's no longer the commander in chief, even though it says the president there too. It uses the same language. So you say that implies former, but it doesn't imply former anywhere else to make it consistent with Clause 7. But then you've still got a fundamental problem with Article 3, Section 2, Clause 3, which says all trials with the exception of impeachment shall be by jury. And then the Sixth Amendment, which guarantees to individuals certain rights. And what you ultimately are left with is this contorted thing where you've created three classes of people, private citizens, former officials, and current officials. And that doesn't, it, that's not, there's no way to, in my opinion, to read the constitution consistently to apply to all, to create all three of those. So you basically, you're ultimately left with, can you impeach a private individual or not? That's ultimately the former thing. It's a red herring in my opinion, because um, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing to suggest that it's, if that it's, I don't think you can do it to a former official, but there's certainly nothing in there if we're reading stuff into this to stop them from reading even further. Let's have a question on that. So I believe you just said that uh, that all trial all trials would be by jury except for the case of impeachment. But uh, as I read the article of impeachment, it also invokes 
maybe formally or informally, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Is is that that would not be an impeachment procedure, would it? Would there what and is there a procedure that's known or established under Section Three of Art of the Fourteenth Amendment? So now we're in uncharted territory, I would believe. And right. I, I, you know, I can't really speak exhaustively to this, but it seems to me that you know that's probably that's not that is a separate thing from impeachment. You're just removing somebody because they tried to overthrow the government, basically. And um, and is that a is that by uh, Congress, just the Senate, by a jury? Surely it's not by the. I mean, what do you think the procedure would be? Because I don't. I don't intellectually. I don't think it actually is stated. No, it doesn't. It just. But this is a classic example of an unadjudicated constitutional question. I think that con in contrast to this, the late impeachment stuff is not unadjudicated. That yeah. it is actually queer. And when you read art arguments and you read this letter that these attorneys wrote, it's like, well, it doesn't explicitly say no, so therefore yes. And that that's that stands the entire like constitutional regime on its head. If if this were reviewed by the Supreme Court, let's let's say that there is actually a, a conviction, uh, not that I'm predicting that. If if that if this were reviewed by the Supreme Court, wouldn't because of the way the article of impeachment was drafted, assuming that the you know the conviction is consistent, wouldn't the Supreme Court have to? Or I guess they could choose what they want to do, but wouldn't they uh, be reviewing this both under the articles, uh, you know, as as impeachment, but also as removal under section uh, section three of, our, of the Fourteenth Amendment, since they've invoked it. Or would they need to somehow create an entirely different procedure? Part of part of the answer here is that provision, Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, that was, of course, originally passed in the context of Reconstruction, where you had the Civil War, a number of people who had been high-ranking officials in the Confederacy after after the Civil War were re-elected to Congress. Some of them had been, con- you know, representatives and senators beforehand. Others were just like generals or Confederate officials, they got elected. And so this was, this was uh, an attempt to deal with them. And it, uh, I think a, a key part of this is Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which says that Congress has the power to enforce Section 3 and the other sections through appropriate legislation. So Congress passed legislation after, after the 14th Amendment. I think it's called like the Private Act or something like that. Which set out who was disqualified under the fourteenth uh, under the Fourteenth Amendment, Section Three. So, believe I, I don't know the I haven't looked up the the details of what the process would be or whatever. But I, I would think that whatever legislation governed that would have to be invoked, uh, and that you couldn't just do it through a you know congressional joint resolution or something like that or whatever the impeachment. You couldn't fold it into impeachment that way. It would have to be via a statute that Congress passed. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And those are all great points. Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2 gives the Congress, the House and the Senate, the ability and the authority to make their own rules on how they're going to proceed. But it's very important to understand that they can't, that's not unlimited. They can't use that authority to violate other explicit provisions of the Constitution. And that's where we get into trouble because impeachment requires a two-thirds vote. You have this right to a jury trial in these other places. You have other stuff happening here. So, you know, I'm not sure how we get to be, we tend to be, and I don't know 
how to put this, we, we tend to get very legalistic in situations like this, when in reality, we're reading, like, it seems to me we're reading into, and I'm not saying you all, but we're reading into the Constitution what we want it to say, because it doesn't say no. And so that kind of approach completely, I think, undermines the validity of a legalistic approach to any problem solving, because who's to say we can't read into it something different in a different circumstance? Either the rules are the rules and they have meaning or they don't. And it it strikes me that the House's effort to impeach Trump after he's left office, if the Senate were able to clear the threshold of two thirds, that that would be flatly unconstitutional. And barring an ability to prove that he's engaged in sedition or treason, I'm not sure that that's good either. And this, it's really important to understand where impeachment comes from. Impeachment is something that the people give to their representatives, i.e. Congress, to arm them against the executive and the judiciary whom they do not control. That's why the understanding is you really can't impeach members because you can expel them. And then occurring to practice, if you expel a member, well, what happens if they get elected again? They just they, Then they get to stay because ultimately it's the people making that decision. But and so the idea that somehow we're going to empower Congress, our own representatives, to turn around and target individuals in the polity, private citizens, for various reasons. And yes, the Civil War, that's an extraordinary circumstance, I think. That, I think, is completely out of alignment with the kind of theoretical and practical and historical sources of impeachment in this country. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the historical examples, because there have been... Uh, so. There has never been a case where someone has been a former a former official has been successfully impeached. So there have been three cases where there have been att- attempts to con- there was an impeachment of three former officials uh, or three officials that when by the time they got to be tried uh, they were former former officials and. Uh, in in none of the three have there have they ever been uh, convicted but so but the arguments in those cases i think you know kind of bear some similarities to what we're hearing now so to you know tell us a little bit about those historical examples and what light they might shed on the current case i mean the first impeachment ever involves this question it's william blunt he's from north carolina he if you're following along with the constitutional convention at home he signs it from north carolina he then ends up in tennessee where he becomes a senator and he tries to basically steal some land i guess from the Sp- spanish and sell it to the english or something and then john quincy uh, john adams finds out and then he tells the house and then the house impeaches them. But before the trial can begin, the Senate just says, we're going to expel you. So they expel him. He's gone. And then the House demands that they have a trial. And this, I think, really underscores some of the danger and the problems with this, because you have basically, and the House managers, the arguments during the blunt trial are sobering. They're like 1984 so, I mean, it is very sobering. They claim that the federal government has the authority to impeach anyone in America, anybody, not just former officers, anybody. They claim that the common law is in force where the Constitution is silent, which is false. And it is all part and parcel of a partisan vendetta 
And look, Blunt's not innocent. I'm not sure he's a nice guy. I don't know much beyond about him beyond that. But it's all part of a partisan vendetta. Look, he was gone. But the Federalist majority of the House sees an opportunity to make life difficult for Republicans. And then incidentally, what happens a couple of years later when the tides turn? Republicans try to do the same thing to judges and use impeachment as a weapon and as a cudgel. And you see that with the Chase impeachment trial. And it's, it's very concerning. But basically, we hear time and time again, Blunt was a former member, therefore that's the precedent it's set that you can't impeach a member. I'm like, well, he was also not in office. He was not in office. And he was not susceptible to impeachment or at least to conviction in the Senate. And the Senate ultimately had a vote and deemed that it wasn't that they they had no jurisdiction. But the important point to point out is there's still a trial. I mean, you have to have a trial. The Senate can't make a decision about an articles of impeachment, whether to dismiss them, whether to approve them or not, without having some sort of proceeding. That has to happen. The key thing that matters is not the trial. It's whether or not you can convict. And the Senate didn't convict them, nor did it convict in this uh, one of the cases that I'm sure people hear time and time again now. And Belk, is it Belknap or Belknap? I can't decide if the K is silent, but he was a secretary of war. And he resigned at the last minute, and the this House pressed the, forward. Uh, this but, is the, the Johnson administration or uh, the Grant, admi- Grant administration? Grant, Grant, the House pushes forward with his impeachment anyway. It goes to the Senate. They have a vote. They vote that they do have, in fact, jurisdiction to have a trial, which they do. And then they ultimately conclude that they that he's they acquit him because, and then if you look at the record, the Senate is voting for acquittal. All but two say because he's no longer in office. And so I'm not sure why that precedent suggests somehow the Senate can convict a former office holder. And there's an interesting wrinkle here in the Belknap case that hasn't come up yet to my knowledge, which is there's a lot of talk about resigning at the last minute to avoid impeachment and setting aside whether or not not that accomplishes the goals of impeachment and everything else. The simple fact is the House told him they were about to impeach him. They literally told him. And then the chairman of the committee that was investigating him said, you should resign. <laughs> I mean, right. and then now somehow, like, we are now convinced, like, not like it's but nobody talks about that. They're like, well, of course you can convict a pro- uh, an individual. But then you run into this question that, that is addressed in the Belknap case about, well, how long after you leave office? Like, what if I served in office 50 years ago? Can you impeach me then? Do you have to impeach me while I'm in office? During the trial, House managers were arguing that Belknap resigned at 1020 or something or 1040 in the morning. It was in the morning. President accepted his resignation, which incidentally, that's a separate issue. Does accepting a resignation in the face of an impeachment violate the pardon power clause and the limitation on impeachment? I think that's interesting. But setting that aside... He resigns at 10 in the morning. At like two in the afternoon, the House impeaches him. When questioned about this at the trial, the House managers say, yeah, it was the same day. It was the same day. Like we get a day, like it's de minimis. Like what? None of it adds up. I mean, either the rule is the rule or it's not the rule. And And if it's not the rule, then tell me what the rule is. But instead, we get all of these ambiguities in these gray areas, and we get the kind of situation where our Constitution was explicitly designed to 
avoid. Yeah, you could. Uh, I mean, I think you could flip the argument around and say that actually it makes, you know, that, that the, the prospect of there being this additional punishment or consequence if you are convicted, which is for future disqualification, that uh, that's important in order to create an incentive for you know bad officials to res- resign early, and that if you can if you can still go after them after they've resigned, then you've removed you know uh, a motive for them to resign so- sooner, right, and stop being the bad official sooner. Correct. And if you look at the and the House actually has dropped it. During the the impeachment trial of Judge English, the House asked the Senate to stop the trial and dismiss the charges. They ask him to. Why? Because he's no longer in office. The House has done that time and time again with investigations. What are the two times the House has not done that? And what are the two times that the House has insisted on its constitutional authority to impeach private citizens and then the Senate convict them? One, during the 1790s, when partisanship was at an all-time high, at that you know, people are losing their minds, and then also during the Grant administration with radical Republicans and the battle over Reconstruction. And so, forgive me if I'm, you know, a little bit doubtful as to the open and shut case of the constitutionality of the of these particular proceedings based on these two instances in our past. We have Thomas Jefferson writing. James Madison, during the Blunt trial, saying, this is really interesting. And can we impeach a former official, somebody who's not in office? And Jefferson and Madison responds, that would be a dangerous innovation on the impeachment power. And like, there's countless examples of those kinds of anecdotal things. But instead, when we when you question this and you ask questions and you try to define where the limits are and how we actually say, how long do you have to be resigned for? And is it private citizens? Why not? It's like, well, it has to be this way because Trump gets off scot-free if he doesn't, which he doesn't because there's still the criminal process. And if he broke a law, the state can prosecute him and he can go to jail, which to me is a hell of a lot scarier than not running for office. Yeah. And, and there is, uh, you know, even if, even if Trump is not, uh, dis, you know, formally disqualified from office, if he chose to run again, I assume that the events of January 6th and his culpability of that would become a, a, you know, a major campaign issue, both in the primary and then if he got the nomination in the general election, then, you know, if people decided that that was bad and voted against him on the basis of it, uh, you could end up with functionally the same result, uh, even if it's not legal a legal requirement. Yeah, I mean, let's think about this for a second. And this is really important. Let's go back to Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7, with the limitation on judgment. And essentially what we're talking about here is the Senate, for these two things to stand independent of one another, which far be it from me, just some you know lowly person from the South, I don't know. Like, but you have 150 plus constitutional authorities from really elite universities telling me they do. But common sense tells me very clearly that for that to be the case, the Senate would have to be capable of keeping somebody in office by not removing them and then turning around and disqualifying them. 
Like that doesn't make any sense. The Senate rules also say that the second you acquit somebody, the second you, I mean, the second you vote not guilty or the second two thirds fail to vote guilty, a judgment of acquittal is entered. So the Senate would then have to turn around and disqualify somebody they just acquitted, or they would have to remove somebody from an office they've already, they don't occupy, which at that point, the rules don't even have meaning. I mean, the words don't even have meaning in the rules. Because to remove means to take from a place. And if you're not there, what, what, it doesn't make any sense. But the ultimate problem that I see in all of this is that the drive to disqualify, and I'm not speaking on, about Trump or on his behalf or anything else, but what I'm saying is the drive to disqualify, there is a solution to that threat that people see. Well, we have to keep him out of office in the future, then beat him in an election. Since when did America become a place where to keep people from office, we bar them from office using the power against them versus in the public sphere trying to win elections. And I know that's a bit naive, but I'm still going to be a little naive. At the end of the day, there's a very simple solution to this, and it's called beating Donald Trump during the next election if he so happens to run. Let's not take Donald Trump. Take some under third secretary for the fourth branch of some other thing, and we don't need an interior or something. What about that person? That person gets impeached. Their entire career is over. What if they really, I, I've worked in politics. What if the, you know, what if two thirds of the Senate really didn't like me because I, you know, came up with a way to force amendment votes on things and they really didn't want to do that. And it was the dead of night. Nobody's paying attention. And it's like 1874. I mean, crazier things have happened. I mean, this is, it's astonishing to me. Like if you don't like Trump, then beat him. Don't try to bar him from the game. Couldn't he? Couldn't he be uh, impeached and convicted if, like, the day after inauguration, uh, if he were to win in you know four years from now, couldn't he still be convicted and removed at that point? That's like, I that's I believe that I've been looking into this. I think the sec, I think the only bar is you have to be in office. There's, but then you get the late impeachment crowd will say, well, it has to be to justify their attack or their um, or the position they have on former officials. It has to, they need to limit it in some way. And so to former officials and not private citizens. And so they put, you ha- they read into the constitution, this idea that impeachable offenses have to happen when you're in office. Like the bottom line is the constitution can impeach you for not tying your shoes the way they want you to. It doesn't matter. And so all of us, because of that, you're telling me now that they can, and they get the exclusive definition of impeachable offense, number one. But then two, you're, you're going to restrict that in some way. I just don't, I don't follow, I don't read that into the constitution. So I'm with you. I think the second he leaves office, he's now immune from impeachment. Why? Because he's a private citizen and the constitution doesn't let us impeach private citizens. They get jury trials, as Luther Martin says, in his defense of Chase in the 1805 trial in the Senate. He's like, you relinquish your right to a jury trial when you take office. And when you leave office, you regain that right. And Donald Trump's no longer in office. Now, if he goes back to office and they want to impeach him, then they can they can certainly, certainly, in my opinion, do that and then convict him and, and, bar, and kick him out again. So that would bar him from going back to office. So it seems like there's no problem. Here's an interesting question for you, though. The Senate is a continuing body, right? So impeachment proceedings don't expire. They can last Congress to Congress to Congress as long as it gets out of the House in time. So what if the Senate just kind of puts this impeachment thing on hold for a very long time? 
and just waits and just keeps it there so that if Donald Trump runs again, they can say, we're going to have a trial. I mean, that's it's crazy. But procedurally, I'm not sure why that would be a problem. Would, it, would there be any sort of there's there? <laughs> I realize we're in sort of unprecedented territory here. But is there, is there, is there anything analogous to double jeopardy in a situation like this? Could I, mean, I understand what you're saying about being a continuing body, but could they not reopen it under a new Senate in the future? Well, there's only one Senate. There's not a new Senate. We've only had one Senate ever because we don't, it's not the House. You have only a third of members coming in and out. It's, I think that's the first thing to kind of wrestle with. Second thing is, look, the, what we're talking about now is unprecedented. People are making a case that you can convict a private citizen. That is just as unprecedented as what, if it happens, as what I've just proposed. And then number three, and I'm not saying what I proposed is a good idea. I'm just throwing crazy ideas out there. But number three, it's interesting that I think one of the greatest stumbling blocks for people to understand impeachment in Congress and under the Constitution is that they approach it like a legal proceeding that takes place inside a courtroom. And yes, the framers borrowed a lot of the language and concepts to describe it. And that's from our English heritage, too. But the fundamental point is the impeachment proceeding is not a legal proceeding. It's not criminal. It's not criminal proceeding. They're the, the, all of that stuff you learned in law school does not apply unless you, the senators want it to apply. And it's perfectly legitimate one way or the other. And so I find it very odd when I get people quoting to me like Supreme Court cases saying, well, this is what they said a trial must be. And I'm like, well, but yeah, for a court and a Article 3, not the Senate. Because they can't, they don't have the authority to tell the Senate how to run its trial. And so I think what I think it's helpful to think in those terms, but I think it's also helpful to keep in the back of your mind the Senate is not a courtroom. Right? Judge Judy is not presiding. And therefore, what's happening, I need to approach with that kind of thing still firmly lodged in my mind. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, the, one of the interesting things about this sort of question, there's several of them, is that. You know, we can we can have a lot of arguments about you know whether whether it's allowed for the Senate to do X or Y or whatever, um, but ultimately I guess the question is, you know, they have the sole power uh, to try, and I guess it's up to them to do what they want if they if they unless they were to convict. Uh, the question, in a sense, never really gets resolved because people you know, would just next, if this ever comes up again, they could just, you know, use all the same arguments. So it, you know, I guess the only, the only way you would have a situation where it might become a a legal matter would be if, if the president, you know, if they were to convict and disqualify Trump for running again, and then he were to decide, yeah, I would like to run again in the future, then I guess, and bring some sort of like court challenge, then presumably at that point, uh, the courts would have to decide whether they wanted to resolve that and how. Uh, I- am I missing anything, or is that? Well, no, I think it's incredibly important to have these debates now. And look, I may be wrong, but I think it's incredibly important to have these debates and not to let go unchallenged assertions as to what the Constitution means when those assertions are being used to drive senators to make a particular decision to legitimize the outcome. It's perfectly fine to do that. It's perfectly fine to make those assertions. It's also perfectly fine. And I think even more important to then question them. 
because the constitutionality of the proceedings, as we've seen from Chuck Schumer and from others, is now being used as a reason why they should happen. And it's and I think that's a really important thing to contest if you think it's not actually true. Number two, if Trump is ultimately acquitted, what we will be left with then is just one more precedent that people will misquote in the future as to the Senate's ability to do this sort of thing, especially if there is not a larger conversation about the Senate's authority under the Constitution to convict a private citizen. I mean, look at what, I mean, if you read the Belknap case, if you sit down, it's like a couple hundred pages of the congressional record. You could probably read the journal and go faster, but I recommend the debates. It can get a little boring at times, but what jumps out at you is that it is not what proponents of late impeachment portray it as. If you stop and think about the Blunt case for a second, and you're, you realize that it's not about, it's not just about, I should say, Blunt being a former member. I mean, a member, because he wasn't a member. He was a private citizen beyond the reach of the Senate to convict. Why? Because private citizens aren't subject to impeachment. And I think that's really important, but we don't, we just paper right over that stuff. There's, if you read, and I I have nothing but respect for him, Keith Whittington has a Wall Street Journal op-ed. I think I encourage your listeners to read it. I disagree with it, but Keith is an incredibly smart man incredibly smart. And he mentions the trial of Warren Hastings. And he says that was happening in England at the time, which was a late impeachment. Hastings had already left office. And they say, well, proponents of late impeachment will say, because the framers knew about the Hastings trial, they must have implied that you could also impeach somebody who was a private citizen. And they point to a passage in the debates where Mason says, let's have it like that. What they leave out, and it's only one paragraph, I could tell you the page number if you give me a second, is that what Mason's saying is we want to expand the number, this, the nature of the crime that we think is subject for being impeached. Not the time, the crime. And But it's just paper that's left out. And so you get all of this kind of stuff right now, or that the default somehow is that impeaching the constitution expands impeachment to being in office. Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't expand anything under the articles. You can't impeach. There was a amendment to try to impeach, but you can't impeach. There's no, the default is no impeachment. It's not an expansion. It's a creation of a power at the federal level, but we're, but we don't, we're not, people just paper over that stuff. And so I think that if we don't use, and by we, I mean people who agree and disagree on this question. I'm not saying I'm the authority. If, but if Americans don't use these types of uh, very unprecedented situations, which appear to be happening more and more, unfortunately, to debate the Constitution, the Constitution ultimately is going to recede and disappear. All right. Well, we will end it on that note. And uh, James, thank you for joining us. And I promise that when... President Trump is impeached for the third time. We will have you back on to discuss that as well. Can't wait. 